You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The longer that we live with and study SARS-CoV-2, the more we learn about how the virus moves around. The primary mode of transmission is through close person-to-person contact, but some unforeseen facts about transmission are emerging. For example, 40 to 45% of the people who contract the virus will remain symptom-free, but are still contagious. Now, other surprises in how the virus spreads suggest additional precautions we should take. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, research about coronavirus transmission that points to your sewage, toilets, and pets. Plus, scientists strengthen the case for airborne transmission. And another transport twist, a shortage of glass vials could slow the global delivery of any vaccine. It's COVID curiosities. You may feel like summer is going to the dogs because of the pandemic, but is the pandemic going to your dog? I mean, how about your cat? New warnings for pet owners in the age of coronavirus. The CDC and the USDA confirming two pet cats have now tested positive for COVID-19. Those New York cats caught the virus in April, and since then, a few more pets have become COVID victims. Globally, there have been a handful of cats and dogs that have been identified as testing positive. So many questions. How worried should we be that our pets can catch COVID? How might they catch it? And how will your pet handle social distancing? That might be life as usual for cats, but dogs? This all gives us pause. And here to give us more than a rough idea of how concerned we should be that our beloved four-leggeds could catch the virus is Yvette Johnson-Walker an epidemiologist in clinical epidemiology at the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine. I think it is a rare event. Despite the huge number globally of human cases, there have really been very few pets that have identified as being tested positive for COVID-19. In most cases, those pets, if they had any clinical signs at all, they were very mild, and those pets that had close contact with a person that was a confirmed case for COVID-19. 
The fact that this seems to be an unusual or rare event at this point, as you said, so we don't have to be too worried, but we want to take precautions. But as a scientist and as an epidemiologist, what interests you about this, the fact that pets are becoming infected with this virus? I think the fact that this is a novel virus, we're learning more about it each day and uh, really developing opportunities to to learn more about what species are susceptible and, and what those different layers of susceptibility or degrees of susceptibility are. Uh, since we believe the virus originated in bats, that it is a zoonotic disease, so transmissible from animals to humans, and so it's not surprising that there are non-human species that can be infected with the virus. And uh, it's just a matter of, as we learn more about it, being able to identify those species. I think the one thing we have clearly demonstrated, though, is that the pandemic that we're seeing is really due to person-to-person spread, and that there's been no indication that pets or other species are responsible for causing illness in people. But it does seem to appear that in some circumstances, people can uh, transmit the disease to at least cats and dogs. What has been prompting owners to get the tests for their pets in the cases where they have? Those animals are exhibiting some kind of respiratory illness? So in some cases, uh, they were situations in which, yes, a person who was clinically ill from COVID-19 had a pet that may have been showing signs of upper respiratory uh, tract infection. And so they also tested the pet Uh, to try and determine whether or not the pet had indeed developed the infection. And this is really part of our investigation and learning more about how the disease uh, transmits throughout a household and throughout a community was to look at which other members of the household, including the pets, uh, may be infected when there's a person in the house that we know is, is shedding virus during that time. So there's a lot of shedding going around. Animals are shedding fur, humans are shedding viruses, everything's getting mixed up. Are the tests for the for the animals the same, the tests, the COVID tests that you give to humans? Is, is it a blood test or is it a saliva test? So it depends on what they're testing for. If they're testing for the actual virus, then they're doing uh, very similar types of swabs that they do for people. So they'll do a nasal or oral pharyngeal swab uh, to try and get viral particles from the individual. If they're testing for antibodies, they will collect a blood sample uh, to look for antibodies that have been produced in reaction to that infection. In the cases where pets have contracted the disease, how is it exactly is it being transmitted? We know that we, we really cozy up to our pets. There's a lot of breathing in each other's faces. Maybe I've answered my own question there. Is it the, just the way that we transmit it with humans? I think so. And that you've got the two situations. You've got directly sharing respiratory particles with your pet from breathing and licking and being very close to each other, giving them kisses, and then contaminated surfaces within the household, where if that person has coughed or sneezed or something on on their hands and then touched a surface and then their pet comes along and licks or sniffs that surface uh, directly after, then that becomes a potential route of transmission. And so, yeah, transmission is happening the same way it is from person to person. Well, then to be clear, if there is a chance that they can catch coronavirus Uh, Does that mean that we should resist from petting those cute dogs that we see on our walks? I think because there's the potential for that animal, even if they're not infected, if the person 
has the disease. They can be a mechanical carrier. It can be on their fur if the person who has the illness is touching that pet. And so I would, I would refrain from having that type of contact uh, right now at this, at this point during the pandemic. We've been talking about uh, pets acquiring COVID, but also uh, some zoo animals have become infected. I was looking at the list. The USDA puts out a list of the animals that have been infected. It's, it's a brief list, but included on it are three tigers and two lions, all in the Bronx Zoo. Any idea how the big cats got this virus? Well, it's believed that, again, it was exposure to zookeepers that were asymptomatic but infected. And so, um, in fact, we were able to identify those cases in the large cats before we saw cases in the pets. And those cats uh, were clinically ill. Again, primarily mild symptoms, and uh, they did all resolve. All the cats have recovered. But indeed, um, lions and tigers have been tested positive for it, and, and it's pretty sure that it was due to exposure to people that were infected. It's interesting, isn't it, that, as you said, we shouldn't be surprised that other animals are catching this disease because it is a zoonotic disease. And and the definition of that, I believe, is a disease that can jump from animals to humans. But of course, humans are animals. So it's really, it's really a disease that jumps from animals to animals. We somehow consider ourselves something other than animals, but we're in that category too. Right. And, and there are a lot of viral diseases that that are very species specific and that will only impact one particular species or type of animal. Uh, But then there are others that have a much broader host range. And so they may affect uh, non-human animals and also humans in, in those circumstances. And so we're learning more about those diseases as they begin to emerge in part as we begin to encroach upon those wildlife habitats where we're now seeing increased contact between wildlife domestic animals and humans where we have have had opportunities then to see those species jumps, those jumps from wildlife into either domestic animals or people occurring with greater frequency. Well, Yvette, is there any animal that theoretically could not get COVID-19? If it is a, a disease that jumps from animal to animal, could birds, hamsters, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but crickets, I mean, may, maybe the only requirement is that you be an animal as far as the virus is concerned. It's just looking for a new host and it doesn't care what species you are. Well, for most pathogens though, most, whether they're viruses especially, have a limited range of species that they can actually infect because they depend on the cells of those hosts to make copies of themselves. And so there usually is a requirement that there be particular receptors in the respiratory tree of those species that those viruses can can bind to. And there are gonna be differences in those receptors and their location and the ability of the virus to bind depending on the species of that host. And so it's usually a really limited range. I wouldn't expect say, insects to be involved in this at all at any point in time. Birds, at this point, there's no indication that birds or cattle or other species like that have been infected and are susceptible. I think it probably the more closely related you are to a cat, maybe in, your, in that species tree, 
then there may be some higher risk of susceptibility. Um, but it'll be interesting to see as we learn more about other species, if there are other species that are susceptible. But at this point in time, we really haven't, haven't identified those. Well, finally, Yvette, so it sounds like you've given us advice for keeping your pets safe from COVID. So if you're sick, that means you need to self-isolate from your pet. And so much for snuggling up with your cat or your dog while you recover. Wear a mask. <laughs> and, but they can be at the foot of the bed and you're at the head of the bed. That's okay. <laughs> Yvette Johnson-Walker, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you. This was fun. Yvette Johnson-Walker is an epidemiologist at the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine and affiliate faculty member at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health. Well, in summary, Seth, uh, it's still okay to have pets in the home, it sounds like. The other thing is interesting that this virus, in fact, uh, you know, can adapt itself to various critters. I mean, that's not always the case. There are many diseases that we get that many other members of the animal kingdom do not, you know, your, your, your pets usually don't get your cold and stuff like that. So it's somewhat interesting that the coronavirus uh, seems to be willing to attack your, your live-in animals. And by the way, no pets were harmed in the production of this show. Uh, all we mentioned recovered from the virus nicely. We are shedding virus in many ways. Here's another example. Consider where some of the virus ends up after it passes through a community. We say the sewage doesn't lie because everything that happened in that city is somehow captured in that sample. Coming up, we go with the flow as we find out how much of the coronavirus is in the flow. It's COVID Curiosities on Big Picture Science. everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Here's a quiz. What does the novel coronavirus have in common with the following compounds? Heroin, fentanyl, alcohol, nicotine, and Ritalin. Answer? 
Well, scientists can track them all through wastewater-based epidemiology. I've been a believer in wastewater-based epidemiology for a long time, and we've been using it, and we're always scratching our head, why aren't people using this very inexpensive tool that gives them so much information? And we compare this to like an information superhighway, where we are the only people plugging in and for, for years. Uh, nobody else in the U.S. was plugging into that stream of information. His use of stream is not metaphorical. Rolf Halden, director of the Biodesign Center for Environmental Health Engineering at Arizona State University, studies sewage to find out where the chemicals and pathogens in it wind up and how they affect our health. It's a fascinating and growing field in many countries, although it hasn't yet caught on so much in the U.S., although Dr. Halden hopes to change that. Last year, his team expanded their chemical monitoring of wastewater to include viral biomarkers, and then SARS-CoV-2 hit this year, and as it happened, they were ready to track it. They've been able to monitor the presence of the virus in the community of Tempe, Arizona, without testing individuals. But first, they had to get down and dirty. Yeah, it's uh, not pleasant, so we, we look to the things we leave in the bathroom and measure the composited effluent of households and neighborhoods and entire cities. And that allows them to detect and monitor coronavirus. Unlike in Las Vegas, secrets and sewage don't stay there when epidemiologists are around. And we say the sewage doesn't lie because uh, everything that happened in that city is somehow captured in that sample. So let's dive in. Dr. Halden, what exactly can be learned from a wastewater sample? It contains all the things that we typically drop off at a doctor's office, you know, in a, in a clinical specimen of urine or stool. But uh, what we get is a mixture, and it's not just one individual, but it's many, sometimes a million people or two million people in a single sample, collected over 24 hours. And, and where do you get these samples? I mean, do you just, you know, put a bucket at the end of the sewer line? So we're not chasing the sewage uh, per se. There, there are already, you know, dedicated monitoring locations. So every wastewater treatment plant tries to understand, you know, what the quality of the water is that goes in and that comes out. And so they already have a sampling infrastructure there in terms of a sampler that looks like a keg of beer and collects what's known as a 24-hour composite sample. You can think of it as uh, the average chemistry of a city uh, during the course of a day and night. But what is it that you're looking for? I mean, are you looking for actually virus particles or little bits of their RNA or, you know, antibodies? What is it that you look for? So what are we measuring? In a way, we measure the virus particles, but not directly. So we're not counting with a microscope virus particles going through. Instead, we're looking for uh, elements that are contained in the virus shell that are occurring only in one copy. And that's a given gene of, uh, you know, so uh, genetic information. And so what we do is we have analytical tools that allow us to count how many of these genes and each being representative of a virus particle, are traveling through our monitoring location. Okay, so you're looking for little snippets of RNA that are peculiar to the, in this case, COVID-19 virus. That's right. So I compare it to a license plate, you know, so we don't look at the whole car and analyze it. We just look for license plates and we count them and say, if there's so many license plates going through, we know so many, you know, that's the vehicular traffic in this location. Well, okay, but, but in the case of a license plate... I know that there's only one license plate per car, maybe two if you count front and back, but only one number. Whereas if I find some snippets of RNA that are due to COVID, 
I mean, I don't know a priori. Does that mean that there are a thousand people who are sick? Or does that mean that there's one person who's really, really sick and producing a lot of these things? Seth, you're asking the right question. So I can tell you that uh, we have very good science to measure the abundance of the gene so the copies of the genetic information coming through, that count is very good. Compare it to you know, a line you put over a road and you count the cars going by, right? Every car going over the line registers as, as one you know, vehicle. What we don't know right now is how to translate that signal specifically to the number of infected individuals. And that's where a lot of guesswork starts. And some people have uh, issued wild guesses in the past. And now everyone expects that we can make a wild guess. And, uh, and the truth is, we really don't know. So it's, there's a fair amount of uncertainty in translating those, those values. I believe that we have uh, evidence that the information certainly is useful. So you can tell the presence and the absence. And then you can also look at trends. If you look at the same location and you see that the numbers are picking up, that means that your, your situation probably is not improving with respect to controlling the virus. But beyond that, when you begin to estimate how many people are infected, that is really tricky because we don't have that information yet. We don't know how long and how much different people of different age and different you know, ethnicity and so forth excrete and whether an asymptomatic person excretes in a different pattern than a symptomatic person. So I compare it to a thermometer. The temperature we measure is real. We don't know what the heat source is. Is the heat source a Bunsen burner close to, to the monitoring location or is it the sun that's 100 million light years away, right? but very strong? So we don't know that. But the, the data we collect is robust. The interpretation is, uh, is a little soft right now. But that sounds like uh, even, you know, in the absence of an absolute calibration, am I correct in presuming that what it can tell you is if the number of cases is going up or going down? Absolutely. So, yeah, again, so there's qualitative information. Is it there? Is it not there? And is whatever it is that you're doing working or not? So is the trend still going up while you are implementing measures to control it? Then it probably signals to you that you need to do more. Uh, or whatever it is that you're doing is not working. What about the effects of the uh, sewage system itself? Does that degrade the coronavirus? You know, if it's in the sewage system for a long time, I, I presume it doesn't come out any better. The wastewater treatment infrastructure works in removing a lot of things, including coronavirus, and does this by multiple mechanisms. And so we know that the virus count of the water going through the wastewater treatment plant is, is being reduced by orders and orders of magnitude. But even if you detect a signal of something coming out of the wastewater treatment plant, that does not imply that there is an infectious virus present. It just means that there's a snippet of genetic information that we can still detect, right? But it doesn't really inform on risk. And that's important to know because people should not panic you know, uh, because some people even have tried to cultivate, you know, culture the virus out of straight stool coming from a patient, and they were not successful. So, you know, it, it's it, it's not like a, a super dangerous uh, form of um, of contagion, if you will. Um, it is more a way for us to measure in real time how many people are carrying the virus. And and to us, it doesn't matter whether they're asymptomatic or symptomatic, right? Whether they're in the hospital or whether they are just running around and don't know that they carry the virus. And that's the beauty of it, because those people who don't know that they are infected, they are the major risk in spreading it. You mentioned that this has not been used much in the United States, this being this technique of looking at the, the sewage. 
but it has been used abroad. I, I believe the Israelis have done this. The Dutch have, uh, you know, looked into uh, the wastewater for diseases. And I think polio was being traced this way as well, right? That's right. So I think the term wastewater-based epidemiology is much younger than the actual science at looking at wastewater. So we always have looked to wastewater to study, you know, the spread of, uh, of chemicals as well as infectious diseases. And polio is a good example. Now, the polio virus is very different from uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's much more resistant and it, it's robust and it gets spread and it's still infectious after traveling through, you know, the sewage for long periods of time. It can sit in there for a long time and still be uh, infectious. Um, but yeah, so the science is not new. I think uh, that other nations compared to the US are ahead of us with respect to using that. And, and that's what uh, has bothered us for a long time because we thought, well, what better way and inexpensive way you have of measuring the health of a lot of people for next to no money, you know, as frequently as you like. And that's really where, where the power is. And so it is, it's very inexpensive. And we demonstrate it's uh, you know, up to a million times cheaper than measuring each individual if you go to a large plant. And it gives you, you can do these essays over and over, right, every, every day. And you have real-time access to the health profile. And not only can you measure threat agents like the virus, but you can also immediately get a feedback information on how your health interventions are panning out. <laughs> so is it useful that we have, you know, we're locking ourselves up in our homes? Is that actually helping? And the good news is it did help. <laughs> so because it would have been a real downer if it hadn't. But what we saw is that the, the concentration of virus particles, you know, significantly have decreased and then eventually went below the detection limit in five neighborhoods of the city of Tempe, um, as an example. And similarly, we know that in communities that don't observe the lockdown as much, we saw that the concentrations of the virus particles remains in the hundred thousands of you know, copies, up to millions of copies of the virus per liter of wastewater. So you have specific examples here of how this you know, measurement technique can give you uh, information on the status of the pandemic. Well, finally, Rolf, it sounds to me, I mean, when I listen to the doctors on television, when Dr. Fauci gets on the tube and tells me what we need, I hear a familiar refrain. He says, we need testing, tracing, testing, tracing. You can do it all a million times cheaper, maybe for a big city. Why is he not talking about testing effluent? Uh, yes, I, I asked that question too, and so I sent him an email and various other members <laughs> at the NIH and uh, contacted the CDC. First of all, there was a lack of information that this existed because it is a it's an it's a science that is in no man's land between medicine, public health, and engineering. And nobody owns it, and there's no research money going their way. I know that for very well because I've been trying to find money for this, and uh, and it's very hard. But uh, I think a realization now is setting in that this is a quick source of getting you know up to date information. But I also uh, a word of caution: you will always have to do the contact tracing. You will always have to test individuals because that's how you find who is the spreader and then you help these people you not infect others that will still have to happen so we will never replace all the clinical testing but boy if we would only direct one percent of what we spend right now on clinical testing so rather than testing 100 people test only 99 and that one test apply it to wastewater we could cover the united states 70 percent of the population starting next week right and i don't know why we're not doing this and i hope we will soon <laughs> I hope the referees at the NIH are listening. 
Rolf Halden, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Rolf Halden is the director of the Biodesign Center for Environmental Health Engineering at Arizona State University. Okay, let's take what we've learned from his research further by backing up. If coronavirus is in sewage, well, it's also in the wastewater flowing from toilets. Which brings us to another eyebrow-raising observation, one with lid-closing consequences. What happens when you flush a toilet? Okay, stuff goes down the pipes, except for what doesn't. We're not sure we want to plunge into this, but it will be easier to do with an expert in chemistry and aerosols. Brian Bisdick from the University of Bristol in the UK joins us. Taking it from the top, Brian, what happens after you press the toilet handle? Yeah, so when you flush the toilet, the water comes down from the cistern or wherever it's held. I mean, if you stand over the toilet and stare at it, it's, it's fairly violent to watch. There's a lot of turbulence in the water in there. And as a result, some of the fluid can actually be suspended as droplets or aerosols. And that can actually come up and out of the toilet, and then it spreads around the room. And, you know, in principle, you could be inhaling it. It could be depositing on different surfaces that you may touch. And need we spell out that that water is not exactly alpine pristine? Yeah, they'll contain, you know, your fecal matter and whatever else you put in the toilet. A group of scientists at Yangzhou University in China wondered what that means if what's being flushed contains coronavirus. So they modeled aerosol distribution in a computer, aerosols being tiny solid or liquid droplets that are suspended in the air. The scientists' results, published recently in the journal Physics of Fluids, suggests that a toilet flush produces coronavirus-carrying droplets that can remain suspended in the air for over a minute they just use basic fluid mechanic equations to describe the dynamics going on in that toilet bowl. And so what they found is that the fluid really sloshes around in there and you can produce aerosols that will then get suspended. And if we assume that some fraction of the aerosol is virus, some of that will make it out of the toilet bowl and into the room. Okay. So, so it doesn't, it's like saying that the air circulation system in an airplane could move the virus from one part of the plane to the other, but that doesn't really mean that it's effective in terms of spreading the, the illness. It says that it's, it's a possibility, but it doesn't tell you whether it is an actuality. Let's step out of the bathroom for a moment, because we want to bring in an even more recent development about coronavirus aerosol transmission. Many scientists now say there is strong evidence that the virus is airborne. So w- what would that mean? I mean, to say the virus is airborne. Well, that it could be transmitted not only from droplets produced when a person sneezes or coughs, but from smaller aerosols, you know, particles that are one-twentieth the width of a human hair that are produced when you, when you laugh, when you talk, and when you breathe. Those aerosols are so small in light, they could just hang around in a room for hours. Well, that's a different kind of threat than being sprayed with droplets from someone who's not wearing a mask or touching a contaminated doorknob. In an open letter to the World Health Organization, published this month in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases, 239 scientists from more than two dozen countries said that airborne transmission is the only plausible explanation for a number of superspreading events. Now, if this is true, it would force a change in indoor ventilation standards. The WHO says that the evidence for airborne transmission is not convincing. Well, this is a developing story, but it's one to keep in mind as we return to Seth's discussion of the possible exposure to coronavirus in toilet spray. Dr. Bizdek describes how different sized droplets travel when propelled by a sneeze, for example. 
there's actually a wide size range that you can produce. And so there you need to start thinking about how that size impacts on how far it will travel. A really large droplet, uh, the force of gravity is, is significant. And so the force of gravity acts to pull it out of the air um, relatively quickly within a few seconds or minutes, depending on the size. Uh, if it's much smaller, then the force of gravity is, is much less. And so it can actually remain suspended for hours or days. And if you're in an indoor environment, then the loss is probably going to be governed by how quickly the air in that room is changed. So if I go into uh, a public bathroom, I mean, if I'm at an airport or a railroad station or something, or just a building where that bathroom is used by other people, I'm walking into an environment where the, the, the air might be saturated with droplets from the last, you know, hours of use. Most of those droplets are probably large enough that they will settle out. And in large public buildings like an airport, I suspect there's a fair amount of ventilation. On the other hand, in someone's tiny hallway bathroom, maybe not so much. Okay. Well, this is obviously not a problem. I mean, I wouldn't worry about this in my own house because obviously I'm uh, sheltering in place with people I know and I know whether they're sick or not. But I am worried about the public facilities. Now, you say most of the large drops would, would drop down, but, uh, but you don't need a very big droplet to contain, I don't know, bacteria, viruses, whatever. No, not necessarily. So bacteria are typically on the order of a couple of micron, micrometers in diameter. Um, viruses typically on the order of 100 nanometers or so. Um, and so they can get into relatively small droplets. But the question is, once they get into those droplets, how infectious are they? How long do they survive? Does it matter the size of the droplet in terms of smaller droplets can penetrate farther into our respiratory tract? Um, whereas larger droplets may have a larger load of the bacterium or the virus in it. But is it clear that it actually does make anybody sick? Is anybody getting sick by using public toilets? We don't know if, if aerosols are the vector for transmitting diseases in public toilets. You know, it's, it's possible, but we don't know that. And I'm kind of curious why we don't know that, because this is not a new question, right? I mean, I, I remember reading 10, 20 years ago about people worried about whether, you know, disease was being, not, not obviously the coronavirus, but other diseases carried by bacteria or whatever, long time ago, and the, the answer seemed to be the same then. Is there, is there some reason why we don't know the answer? There's a lot of unknowns about bioaerosol and, and how long they live and how good they are at infecting people. Um, so it's, it's an area that I think is ripe for future research. And I think we're, we're developing approaches where we can start to look at that nowadays. Okay, because we spoke with a scientist, Rolf Halden, at the U.S. National Sewage Sludge Repository. He says that there is evidence that they can find, you know, coronavirus in sewage. So, of course, that suggests it's in the wastewater coming from toilets. It's made it that far. Is it still viable at that point? Or has it, you know, is it just sort of, if you will, the skeletons of viruses? We don't know the answer to that yet. There's a lot of open questions about once a virus gets into an aerosol and, and is, you know, it's generated, you know, how long does it remain viable? How, how infectious is it? I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Okay, so it could be the case that it could still be viable by the time it leaves your body. It gets into the toilet, could spray up, will spray up, uh, but we still don't know whether that's a real danger or that's not a real danger. Right. We don't know yet. Okay. So what's your bottom line take on all this, Brian? I mean, should I, you know, just avoid uh, using the bathroom when I'm not in my own home? I think the important thing to do is if you can put the toilet seat down before you flush, that's worth doing and also ensuring that you wash your hands at the end. Okay, so the first will take care of anything that's about to come up at me. 
And the second, yeah. washing my hands will take care of any droplets. I mean, I don't understand. I've already been breathing in that uh, stall, and uh, those, those very fine droplets have been there the whole time. You're not in the bathroom all that long as either. <laughs> I'll try not to take the newspaper. All right. <laughs> well, Brian Bizdeck, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Brian Bizdeck is a chemist from the University of Bristol in the UK. Well, it sounds like one of the solutions there is to close the lid before you flush, but it should be said that in some countries, toilets in public restrooms are without lids, so that won't work for everyone. You know, it's a little unclear just because this stuff is sprayed up whether you're actually being subjected to real exposure there. I mean, there were, you know, tests done many years ago about bacteria being kicked up by toilets, and it still remains unclear, as uh, Dr. Bizdek said, whether that actually leads to more disease or not. Right, and you have two things there. One is the new suggestion that the virus could be airborne, which would make that toilet spray more concerning. On the other hand, we don't know, as you said, as he said, if the coronavirus in that spray is viable. Yeah, but the fact that the coronavirus could be airborne, actually, you know, what that means is that, okay, you get out of the toilet and you may or may not have been exposed, but then you go back into the lobby of the building and there are all these aerosols there that may date back, you know, hours and hours. Hundreds of people may have walked through that room and all those little tiny aerosols could be there just waiting for your nose. Here's another surprising worry in the COVID story, also regarding transport. How will we distribute billions of vials of vaccine if we run out of a particular kind of glass? Medical glass makers tend to make only the amount of glass that they have orders for from pharmaceutical companies. Next, a literal bottleneck in the fight to prevent COVID. It's COVID Curiosities on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Coronavirus vaccine development is proceeding at warp speed, and yet there may be a big bump in the road, namely logistics. We've been talking about surprising developments in the transmission of the virus. Here's another surprise that has to do with getting around. We may have trouble quickly distributing any vaccine once we have it. Right now, there aren't enough glass vials in the world to hold the billions of doses we're talking about getting to everyone in this kind of first push in a global vaccination campaign. Which is kind of puzzling. Isn't there a huge stockpile of medical glass somewhere? 
Journalist Megan Molteni recently reported on this strange silica-based shortage and its implications in an article for Wired magazine. Medical glassmakers tend to make only the amount of glass that they have orders for from pharmaceutical companies. Glass breaks. You don't want to have tons of glass sitting around. There is some back supply. There is some inventory, but not on the order that we're talking about. Okay, well, let's get to the bottom of that number because we will need, obviously, uh, the entire world is vulnerable to the virus. So we're going to need at least hundreds of millions to billions of these bottles. So you at least need 7 billion bottles. And that's not even assuming that you need a second dose. You might need a booster shot. What do you see as the time scale for this becoming a problem? Is this a problem today? We don't have a vaccine. Yeah, so timing is really going to determine how much of a crunch there really is going to be. If we we have a number of vaccine candidates that are in clinical trials right now, and we expect data to come out on those by the end of the year. If those look good and we want to start making lots of them, that's where we're going to run into this literal bottleneck of not having enough glass vials to hold the vaccines to then ship them around the world and get them into doctor's offices. But if we actually don't have a vaccine that has high efficacy until later next year, then these glass makers who are ramping up production right now are going to be able to catch up with that supply. All right, well, let's, let's get into the science of this a little bit. Uh, the pills I have, they're all in cheap plastic containers, but my liquid medications are in glass. Why the difference? The difference is that glass is basically impermeable to most gases and in a way that plastic is in. Plastic lets oxygen and other gases in and out. And when you have a liquid medicine that is reactive to those gases, there's the possibility that if it leaches in or seeps into the bottle, it could react, it could change the efficacy of that medicine, it could lead to weird side effects, create, you know, toxins, etc. So glass is kind of the most safe way to transport liquid medicines. Okay, so the container could ruin the contents is what you're saying. Exactly. Uh, What kind of glass do medications require that's any different than the glass I've got, you know, holding, uh, I don't know, my my condiments? Yeah, so high-grade medical glass has to be able to do a couple of things. It has to be able to handle these wide swings in temperature. So say a medicine has to be frozen or refrigerated and maybe it's in a truck and then it warms up and all of those temperature changes can impact kind of the viability of whatever's inside of it. These kinds of glass are often made from a special kind of compound called borosilicate. It's made from a special kind of sand that is angular sand so that when you melt it down, uh, it like locks in really tightly and you get this kind of higher grade medical glass. All right, borosilicate glass. Now, that has low coefficient of expansion, which is kind of nerd speak for the fact that it doesn't break when you heat it or cool it suddenly. I mean, you know, think of Pyrex in your kitchen. That's borosilicate glass. And for that matter, it's the type of glass that's used for, uh, for mirrors in big telescopes, too, because you don't want the, the mirror, you know, expanding and shrinking with temperature and ruining the image. Now, is the problem with getting so much borosilicate glass simply the raw materials, this angular sand as you've described it, or is it just hard to manufacture? What's the problem? It's a little bit twofold. So the raw materials themselves are in short supply. This kind of sand is used in everything from microprocessing chips to solar panels. It is in high demand and it can only be found in these often kind of environmentally um, 
tricky or delicate places. So rivers, beaches, the kind of sand you see in deserts <laughs> everywhere that won't work. It's too round. It's too smooth. Um, so there, there's been such a, a difference between the supply and the demand that's actually led to a lot of really violent kind of black market sand mining that's gone on. So that, that that's one issue. The other issue is that there are a few large medical grade glass makers, um, and there's only really one in the US. So the other ones are in Europe, and many of these vaccine makers are also based in Europe. And so they placed a lot of orders really early and kind of took the existing glass stock off the market. Um, and so now those makers are having to ramp up their production lines, and it takes about six to eight months to get kind of a single production line up. Okay, so there's really a bottle bottleneck. Uh, and maybe the answer is to borrow some technology from Silicon Valley to do, as I understand it, to make a cheap plastic bottle and then deposit a very thin layer of borosilicate glass on the inside. Is that, is that the scheme? More or less, yeah. So the technique is called a plasma vapor deposition technique. And so instead of starting with the hard material of silicate, that you find in sand, um, they're actually starting with a gas, um, a silicon dioxide, and they fill a plastic bottle with that, and they basically drop the pressure, put an electric current through it, and heat that gas up to a plasma state. What that basically allows them to do is to deposit a layer of silicate, uh, kind of atom by atom, on the inside of this plastic bottle. Has this technology been road tested? Are there any plastic with glass on the inside bottles already out there? There are, yeah. The company who has been pioneering this technology, they're called SiO2 uh, for silicon dioxide. They started producing these kind of plastic glass hybrid bottles for the pharmaceutical industry a couple of years ago. This is their first time working with vaccine makers. So in that sense, this has been kind of their foray into the vaccine market. Let's say that we develop a vaccine that's both efficacious and safe by, say, New Year's. The start of the, the new year, how fast could we get it bottled? It kind of depends on who whose vaccine actually looks good at that time. Different vaccine makers have different contracts already in place with glass makers. So this company that we're talking about, SIO2, has relationships uh, with Moderna, which is one of the leading vaccine um, makers in the clinical trials right now. They also have a few other relationships they have not yet disclosed. They are on track to scale up to 120 million vials by November. There are other glass companies that are already making more than that. All of this is to say that if we get something by the end of the year, that's kind of bumping up against that time frame where we're still going to have a shortage to get to 330 million doses for the U.S., which actually is more like 660 million because probably going to have to have two doses. All that is to say is that if we get something by the end of the year, it's going to take us a few months to be able to roll that out. Is this the principal logistics problem with vaccines? I mean, can we... I've seen the packaging lines. They look like the same kind of industrial setup you have for, you know, filling Coke bottles. But, uh, you know, could we fill, label and package those bottles quickly enough? For that matter, could we get them transported quickly enough? I mean, they don't stay good forever, even in those bottles, right? There are definitely lots of other 
supply chain logistics that folks are thinking about right now. We know that everything from the syringe needles to the rubber stoppers themselves are potential other places where we will run into bottlenecks. Right now, the principal vaccine makers are saying that their number one concern is being able to fill vials because they can't make a bunch of vaccine and then let it sit around in vats for a while. They want to get it into these vials. The other thing I should say is that another way to potentially get around this instead of making more bottles is to put more doses in a single bottle. So these are called multi-dose vaccine vials. This You could do this in a places where, say, you have a, a military uh, base where you know you're going to vaccine a bunch of people or a hospital where you're going to vaccinate a bunch of people all at once. Then you could say, okay, here's we're going to put 20 doses in this vial and we're going to you know, vaccinate 20 people. You don't want to have all your vaccines in 20, 20 dose vials because if you send it out to a rural clinic and you don't have enough people and you open that vial and you only vaccinate five people, you've just wasted 15 doses. Well, by the way, could we use empty vials for something else? Not necessarily. The things that go inside these bottles have biological properties, they have chemical properties, and they're different. One vaccine is not the same as the next. So, you know, some bottles may need to have a specific formulation to be able to make sure that they're not reacting uh, with what's inside of it. So it is a balancing act in that sense. Well, finally, Megan, obviously the coronavirus doesn't respect uh, boundaries, national boundaries, even continental boundaries. And so there's going to be a big push to get this vaccine and the rich countries may crowd out those that don't have quite so much money. How do they deal with that? So this is exactly what folks in the vaccine and kind of the global health space are looking at right now. They're trying to develop an innovative financing mechanism to allow equitable distribution of the vaccine around the world. Normally what would happen is a vaccine maker would have a contract, you know, and they wouldn't start making that vaccine until they get a certain number of orders from a country, and then they would put in their order for the glass vials. And so right now there are these kinds of innovative mechanisms that are being worked out to try to make all of those things be able to happen kind of in parallel so that once vaccines start being proven to be safe and effective, they can be made quickly, they can be bottled quickly, and we can have some sort of equitable distribution around the world and not have them, you know, wind up stuck in the country where they were produced. Megan Molteni, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Megan Molteni is a staff reporter at Wired. Before we end, we have an update on a story from last month. It is also about transportation of the virus. We spoke with Chairman Harold Frazier of the Cheyenne River Sioux, who described the checkpoints that they put up in the stretch of South Dakota Highway that runs through the reservation so they could question travelers about their health and travel plans before they entered. He said that the delay is only a minute or two for traffic, but that those crucial minutes have been the reservation's primary protection against the virus. The governor of South Dakota has asked that the tribe remove the checkpoints. The Cheyenne River Sioux have refused as they are on sovereign territory. And the checkpoints seem to be working. Only two cases of COVID had developed on the reservation. When we had spoken with Harold Frazier, South Dakota had had more than 6,000 cases. The update is that the governor's desire to remove the checkpoints has reached the ears of the White House. It has responded by urging the tribe to remove the checkpoints and threaten to withhold federal funding for non-coronavirus-related services if it does not. The Cheyenne River Sioux is now suing the federal government. 
A judge will decide whether the COVID-19 checkpoints remain, although there's no word yet on when that decision will be made. You can hear our interview with Chairman Frazier in the episode COVID and Race, and that is in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. Okay, so looking at the big picture here, it's interesting to me that the pandemic has hair, as we say in science. It has a lot of uh, little fiddly bits, interesting things, some of which are of practical importance, like the shortage of glass vials, and some of them fundamentally important, such as the fact that the virus can hang around in the air for hours, suspended in truly microscopic aerosols. But for me, one thing that was truly astounding was the idea that for the price of one COVID test, you could track the rise or fall of the infection in a city of a million people by simply analyzing sewage. We've said this before, but there's a lot of misinformation about this outbreak. If you come across cures, claims, or data that just don't seem right, check the facts. They're available at your local public health service and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. We couldn't do the show without the help of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the possibilities for life on Mars. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners. This episode of Big Picture Science is COVID Curiosities. is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic, and then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.